good leaders are invaluable. Their contributions are priceless. But it is literally impossible to calculate the carnage wrought in eternity by wicked leaders. By this, I don't mean to refer to incompetent ones. I'm not just referring to times when a leader or boss is incapable or inept, disorganized or confused. I'm talking about when they are positively wicked, when people abuse those under their charge, when they domineer and take advantage, when they look, for, look out for their own interests as opposed to the interests of others, those they're called to lead and serve. And, you know, sadly, the evidence for this is all around us. For example, Bernie Madoff stole approximately $65 billion from investors, including hundreds of charities and foundations. Larry Nasser was the head physician for U.S. gymnastics for many years. And yet for decades, he exploited the girls and young women who came to him for medical care. There is something especially heinous about using authority for selfish gain at the expense of others. This morning, we come to a passage of scripture where God indicts Israel's leaders for that very thing. And yet he promises that one day he'll make it right. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Ezekiel 34. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. We're in our second week in a series entitled Anticipating Advent as we consider some of the promises that God made to his people about a coming deliverer, all of which began to come true at the incarnation of the Son of God. We'll be in Ezekiel 34 verses 1 to 24. You recall that in Genesis 1 and 2, God made everything good. There was no sickness or sadness or death, but then Adam and Eve succumbed to the serpent's temptation. They disobeyed God, and thus they plunged themselves and their posterity into spiritual exile and misery. From then on, death and toil and pain were the new normal. Yet beginning in Genesis 12, God began to make promises to the patriarch Abraham. Uh, He promised him land, seed, and blessing. Land, God promised to Abraham and his offspring, his descendants, the promised land of Canaan. Seed, God said, I'm going to give you lots of offspring. And then blessing, uh, I will be your God and I will prosper you. And these began to come miraculously true in uh, even the ending chapters of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus as Israel multiplied and prospered. But if you read Exodus 1, there is one problem. They're in the wrong land. They're enslaved in the land of Egypt. And so God delivers his people. He saves them through the 10 plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. God is, he's causing his promises to come true. Right before Israel enters the promised land, however, after 40 years of grumbling and wandering in the desert, God told the nation at the end of Deuteronomy, you basically have two options in front of you. You can follow the Lord, leading to joy and life and blessing, or you can follow your own hearts and desires, leading to pain and death and cursing. You are about to go enter the land. Enjoy it. God has prepared it for you. Israel was to be like another Adam. 
Yet if they would prefer sin over the sovereign Lord, God says, you too will be kicked out of this good land. Just like Adam and Eve before you, you will forfeit the land of God's presence and be exiled to the four corners of the globe. And so Joshua leads them into the promised land. Things seemed great for about a generation. Uh, But then Israel kept being faithless to the Lord. Israel's first king wasn't a good one. Saul kept persecuting David. And so we're amazed in 1 Samuel when David comes, comes onto this scene, this lowly shepherd boy, uh, and he becomes a righteous king after God's own heart. He actually loves the Lord. And so in 2 Samuel 7, God makes incredible promises to David that one of David's sons would be king forever, ruling in peace. Yet from Solomon on down, Israel's kings don't prove righteous like their father David. No, they prove like their father, Adam. Though God sent them prophet after prophet, warning after warning, though he was patient and long-suffering with Israel and her kings, well, the kings, far from restraining evil, promoted it. And so God did what he said he'd do. Just as Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden, so the Lord removed Israel from the land of promise. In 586, the temple was destroyed as King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sacked the city Israel was carried off into exile and slavery and captivity in Babylon. And that's where we arrive in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is writing in Babylon, the curses of the covenant have come down. God said, if you disobey, it's going to go really, really badly. They disobeyed. And so now things are really, really bad. Uh, So this book was written by Ezekiel in Babylon. And the main kind of question of the book of Ezekiel is this. What now? Now that we've broken the covenant, has God abandoned us forever? Is there any hope? And so it's with that in mind that we turn to Ezekiel 34. We'll have four sections this morning. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. God will rescue Israel from wicked shepherds by himself becoming their good shepherd. God will rescue Israel from wicked shepherds by himself becoming their good shepherd. So read with me, Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. 
Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they, shall, there they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 1 to 6 entitled Wicked Shepherds. Of course, the first thing we have to ask is, who are these shepherds? Uh, generally speaking, they're the leaders of Israel. Yet specifically, they are the kings of Israel. So in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord refers to the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel. Uh, before kingship existed, the judge was the highest office in the land, and their task was to shepherd the people of Israel. And then the Lord continues when he's talking to David by saying, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be 
prince over my people, Israel. Okay, so uh, the king was to go from being a follower of the sheep to their leader, from sheep to shepherd. Uh, This was the job, job description of the king of Israel, to be a good and faithful shepherd of the people. But that's not, of course, what Ezekiel 34 depicts. You notice in verses 2 to 6, the list of the ways the wicked kings, the wicked shepherds, have failed in their duty before God. Right? So at the end of verse 2, we see that the the shepherds are feeding themselves rather than the sheep. More than that, verse 3 says that the shepherds are actually killing the sheep to feed themselves. You know, it's one thing to feast while your flock starves. That's bad enough. It's another thing entirely. To feast on the flock, you're called to protect. And so you notice the the shepherd's failures again in verse 4. A faithful shepherd doesn't give a one-size-fits-all approach to shepherding. No, he strengthens the weak, heals the sick, finds the injured, brings back the strayed, seeks after the lost. But the wicked haven't done any of these things. Wicked kings have done the opposite. Rather than using their power and authority for the good of those under their charge, they have used the sheep to serve their own power and authority. So, for example, if you read the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, uh, or if you read the prophets, if you read the Old Testament, the kings levied unjust taxes, oppressed the wages of the laborers, promoted child sacrifice, subsidized idolatry and false worship, persecuted faithful Israelites, murdered to protect their lame, greedily stole the land of others, committed fratricide in the desecration of God's temple, took many wives and concubines, trusted in their wealth and their might, became puffed up with pride at their victories, took advantage of the widow, neglected the orphan, oppressed the sojourner, and many other sins. The shepherd's leadership has in fact been so poor that the Lord says in verse 5 and I think verse 8 that it's as if the sheep had no shepherd at all. Now, I've never been around sheep, I'll be honest, uh, except for you know, those petting zoo situations. But the thing about sheep is they need a shepherd. Without a shepherd, they're going to wander off a cliff. They're going to get eaten by wolves. They need a shepherd. Yet, Israel's kings have not been the shepherd that God's people needed. And so the result is verses 5 and 6. The results of this pastoral wickedness. Notice the repetition. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Now, we should notice a couple things here. Uh, First, notice how God calls them my sheep. Previously, they were just the sheep. But here, God draws attention to the flock, to the people that is his flock. They weren't some random people. They were God's sheep. And thus, the shepherds should have been taking extra care, right? Because they're not their sheep. They're God's sheep. Uh, So last night, we had Jake and Abby over to watch our kids as we went out to dinner. And uh, I trust that Jake and Abby were a little bit extra diligent. They're not their kids. You you, got to be, you're a little bit more attentive and careful. You know, you're going to have to give an account. 
Well, so God reminds these wicked shepherds that they have done evil against his sheep. And so second, what's the main consequence of the shepherding? Well, it's that the sheep were scattered. We see that three times. Now, again, this is so significant because in using this phrase, the Lord is calling to mind the culminating and climactic curse of the covenant from Deuteronomy 28. Right? Again, so if Israel disobeyed God, if they began down that path of disobedience, the Lord was going to send them pestilence and famine and the sword and all kinds of bad things to try to warn them of the impending judgment, to try to turn them back. He'd send promises and prophets. For decades and centuries, he gave promises and warnings to try to turn the people around. But if Israel refused to repent, the final indefinite judgment would come. Just as Adam and Eve before them, Israel would be exiled from the land. They'd be exiled from God's presence. And so in Deuteronomy 28, after cataloging 62 verses of terrible curses that would rain down upon Israel if they forsaked the Lord, verses 63 to 65 state, and if you or and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known because of your rebellion. And among these nations, you shall find no respite. You see, God never wanted to curse his people. No, he wanted to bless them just as he blessed Adam and Eve. But like Adam and Eve, Israel refused to obey. They thought they knew better than God. And so God took them from the land. They were scattered because of their sin. This took place in waves because the Lord was continually trying to remind them and say, no, come back, turn back. It happened with the Assyrians in 722 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel fell. And then in 586, Judah and Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed as King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sacked the city. The scattering happened. The curse of the covenant fell. And thus the third result we see in verses 5 and 6 is that last clause in verse 6. With none to search or seek for them. The point is this. Who's going to seek out my people now? Israel's kings, her shepherds, were supposed to be the solution to the problem of scattering sheep. Instead, they were the problem of scattering the sheep. They're the ones who encouraged the nation in their rebellion and disobedience to God. Who will save the flock? And so we come to our second section in verses 7 to 10 entitled, Shepherds Judged. This will be our quickest point. Notice verse 7, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, shepherds, here's the punishment. Here's the verdict. You ready? Verse 8, as I live, declares the Lord, surely. And then the rest of verse 8 just mentions the sins already mentioned. So let me go to verse 9. Okay, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is getting repetitive. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold. You're like, oh my goodness gracious, get to the point. Well, the Lord, the tension's been building, right? The anticipation for 80 words. What is God actually going to say? 
I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand. You know, after all that buildup, maybe you're expecting something a little bit more dramatic. Yet the truth is that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There can be nothing worse than for God to say to you, I am against you. You are my enemy. And yet the truth is that we're all sinners. We're not so different from Israel's kings after all. Sure, we may not have murdered, but do you have anger in your heart? You may not steal, but do you covet? Do you grumble? Do you boast in your accomplishments? Does pride lead you away from depending on God alone? All of us, because of our sin, find ourselves at a crossroads with God. There is a divine hit out on us, as it were, because of our sin. For these shepherds, these kings of Israel, the almighty and omnipotent God stood opposed to them and he will hold them to account. That's what that phrase means. I'll require my sheep at their hand. That is, these shepherds would one day give an account for how they treated the sheep, for how they stewarded the authority and responsibility that God had given to them. And so verse 10 concludes by stating, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. You know, two thoughts here. Brothers and sisters, praise God that evil will not have the last laugh on judgment day. Uh, oppression and violence and hatred and manipulation, you can be sure that God hates those things and that God loves all of those made in his image. For those who would harm others, well, they may escape judgment in this life. They may be able to fool the courts or the justices. They may be able to bribe the officials, but not so on the last day. God will require it of them. They answer to him. And so Christian, in the face of great evil, rest assured that the wicked will be held accountable. You can rest in the certain knowledge of the justice of God. And as a second Christian, how do you steward the authority that God has given you? This is a theme we considered in Mark's gospel as Jesus emphasized the upside down values of the kingdom of God, right? Uh, leaders exist to serve those underneath them, not to domineer them or take advantage or manipulate them. Parents, how would your children characterize your shepherding of your home? Uh, surely our children are oftentimes weak and frail, emotionally and physically and spiritually. They can be tossed about by the storms of life. Uh, parents, do you bind up the wounds of these little ones? Are you sympathetic with their pains and their weaknesses? Or are you tempted to be harsh? A husband, how would your wife characterize your leadership of your home? Are you domineering or servant-hearted? Are you harsh or are you patient? 
remember that your bride is first and foremost Christ's, not yours. You are a caretaker. Uh, Your family is not your own. It is God's flock. So husbands, care for them, shepherd them accordingly. Uh, Christian, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in town, in politics, and in economics, in all of life, steward whatever authority Christ gives you for the good of others, not for self-advancement or self-promotion. So we come to our third section in verses 11 to 26, entitled Gracious Salvation. God has just told us, I will rescue my sheep. And now his promises grow even more bold and more reassuring. Uh, These verses are a wonderful comfort and treasure to the believer. So for example, uh, just look at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I... I, myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land." Brothers and sisters, do you see how emphatic the Lord is that he will do this work? Right? The hirelings have failed. They have not searched for or sought the wandering. And so the Lord himself will do it. He himself will come. So intent is he on the flourishing of his people that he will stop at nothing to provide the care and devotion that they need. God himself will do it. And and you notice how the sheep's biggest problem, their biggest pressing issue of the day, well, it's solved. Three times the Lord had said, my sheep were scattered in verses 5 and 6. And so here in verses 12 and 13, what does the Lord say? He says, I'm on a rescue mission. I'm going to find my people. And I'm going to bring them home. You know, it's like saving Private Ryan, but real life. Uh, Verse 13 mentions bringing the people out from the the countries and bringing them to their own land. This is the very undoing of the curses of the covenant. The exile will be over as God's people are brought home. Their relationship is renewed. As if Adam returned to the garden, so Israel would return to the promised land. Brothers and sisters, this is what we pray about in the pastoral prayer. This is what we labor for with our missions giving, with our lives. God is calling his people from the four corners of the globe. He's in gathering his elect, and we get the great joy and privilege of participating in that work. God will use your words, your evangelism, your discipling, your parenting, your singing, your praying to call his sheep home. That's why we're here in Bedford. We want to help make disciples here in Bedford. We're thankful to do it in Belmont and Cambridge. We're thankful for Hope and Beacon being able to do that. We think we can do that a a better job of making disciples in Bedford if we have a church in Bedford. And so voila, you guys are here. That's what we want to do. We want to be about God's 
rescue mission. Uh, we're, we're beggars. We're, we're sheep saying, bah, we found the shepherd. The Lord is on a rescue mission. In verse 14, he says, I will feed them with good pasture. They shall lie down in good grazing. Do you notice how the language and imagery is almost identical to Psalm 23? We're reminded that the Lord, he causes his sheep to lie down. That is, he doesn't drive them harshly. He's not cold or indifferent to their needs. He doesn't crush them with burdens too great for them to bear. He leads them to rich pastures where they lie down in peace. Afflicted saint, are you tempted to think that Christ is a harsh master? Recall to mind his patience with you. Consider his grace abounding to sinners. Think of your many sins that he has overlooked. Remember the the glories and the joys that await you in heaven. Though in this life you will have many trials, you can rejoice because when you lie down in death, you will awake in good and pleasant lands. And so the climax of this section comes in verses 15 and 16. Look there. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. In short, God will do everything the kings were supposed to do. His love is expressed in the devotion and care that he gives to individual needs of the flock, right? Uh, He doesn't give a bandage to the sheep needing a splint. He doesn't exercise the lamb needing rest. He doesn't neglect or ignore the difficult and wandering sheep. Oh, beloved, he goes after them. He pursues them in love. No matter their trial or affliction, he is there to meet his people with tenderness and compassion. Uh, As the hymn, the king of love, reflecting on Psalm 23 and Luke 15 puts it, the king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth. And where the verdant pastures grow with food celestial feedeth. Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. In death's dark veil I fear no ill, with thee, dear Lord, beside me. Thy rod and staff my comfort still, thy cross before to guide me. And so through all the length of days, Thy goodness faileth never. Good shepherd, may I sing thy praise within thy house forever. If you're here this morning as a Christian, you can be sure that nothing happens to you, nothing befalls you apart from your heavenly Father's doting hands. You are not at the mercy of fate or luck or chemicals or constellations. You have a shepherd, the Lord himself, who is ever watchful, ever caring for you. 
And so we come to our final section in verses 17 to 24, entitled, Sheep Judged. You notice the shift in the audience in verse 17. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Now God turns his evaluating gaze from the shepherds and their failings to the sheep themselves. You know, were they really so innocent in this exile? Well, in verses 18 and 19, the Lord rebukes those who greedily harm other sheep. And notice especially the Lord's indictment in verse 21. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Apparently, it wasn't only the shepherd's fault. Sure, the the kings of Israel led the nation into sin, but it takes two to tango. Uh, The people of Israel had been all too willing to follow into idolatry and injustice. And thus, Israel proved that not all in Yahweh's flock were sheep. Some were wicked goats. And so the Lord summarizes his response in verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. Here we see two realities, two kind of threads that that go throughout the Bible. You'll see they're they're oftentimes right next to each other. Salvation and judgment. They're kind of flip sides of the same coin. Salvation and judgment. You think of the Exodus. God saves his people as he judges the Egyptians. Well, here, again, God will save his people from the bad sheep and the bad shepherds. They will be judged. And so our passage, the entire chapter, comes to a climax in verses 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Okay, pause. Did the Lord just undo and take back everything he just said? Do you remember when he was like, I, 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 myself, I, I, I will shepherd my flock. He was really emphatic. He's going to do it. And yet here in verse 23, a new character is introduced. This David figure, well, now he will be the shepherd of Israel. He will feed them. Likewise, verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant shall be prince among them. That is, this David figure will be the king. What's going on here? Uh, To refer to David clearly is a reference to the promised son of David. David himself had been dead for about 500 years by the time that Ezekiel was writing. And so which is it? Will the Lord himself shepherd his people? Or will this Davidic figure, the Davidic king, shepherd God's people? And friends, it's the answer to that question that we come in this time of year to marvel at. 
The seemingly impossible, mysterious answer to that question that provokes awe and wonder and amazement and worship in our hearts is that at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the incarnation, the eternal Son of God took on flesh. In Jesus, we behold God himself and the Son of David come to be our shepherd. You see, Jesus is the Davidic king come to shepherd us. And he is God himself. He does both. He's truly God and truly man. So for example, in Mark 6, 34, it states, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Just like Ezekiel 35, verse 34, verse 5 says. And so the Lord Jesus became that shepherd. And he's not just a shepherd, not just a king. He's the good shepherd. He's the king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus himself explicitly states in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, this is the king. This is the shepherd we've been waiting for the one we've always needed, who doesn't abuse his authority, who doesn't abuse those under him, but who loves them, who feeds them with his own life, with his own flesh. This is what we've come to celebrate this Christmas season. This is what we celebrate year round. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder who shepherds you. I wonder who leads you. I assume that you won't be arrogant enough to say that no one leads you. Because we all follow someone. We're all picking up our cues and ideas and fashions and priorities from others. The question is, who is it? You know, celebrities aren't really a good choice. Their whole identity is built on using their followers to promote their brand or name. Sports stars might be really good at getting a ball through a hoop or throwing a spiral. But I trust you've seen enough scandals to disabuse you of that notion. Uh, Writers, activists, politicians. Friends, only Jesus actually lived up to the ideals that he espoused. Only Jesus demonstrates perfect love and humility. Only Jesus held nothing back. He gave his life for his followers. He laid down his very life on the cross. There he didn't die for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, so that they could have their trespasses forgiven. On the cross, Jesus was treated as God's enemy, so that we could be treated as God's children. And then the good shepherd who lays down his life, well, Jesus says he takes it back up again. Indeed, the father raised him back to life as proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And so how do you get Jesus to be your shepherd? Well, it's very simple. You repent of your sins and you believe in Christ. To believe is to trust. To repent is to turn away from something. It's really fascinating. In Ezekiel 33... We get a long chapter about the necessity of repentance. And then in this passage about God shepherding his people and seeking them out to end the exile, you could translate verse 16 as, I will seek the lost 
and I will cause the strayed to repent. I will cause the strayed to repent. Which is important for two reasons. First, it does God no good to restore a recalcitrant people, right? Congratulations, you're back in the land. Oh, snap, you're going to sin again and forfeit it. Like, problem not solved. And so second, the second reason that's important, I will cause the stray to repent, because repentance was the condition. It was the condition for the end of the exile. So for example, in Deuteronomy 30, after listing all the curses and the exile, the Lord says, Moses says, when all these curses come upon you and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and you repent to the Lord, then the Lord your God will have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God had scattered you. So God won't gather Israel until they repent. In 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple. He says, if they sin against you, God, and you're angry with them, and you give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity, forgive them. Repentance was always necessary for the end of the exile. And so here, when we read about God's saving, seeking, shepherding activity, well, how does that relate to repentance? Is God just going to bring back these recalcitrant sheep who are just going to wander off again? Well, no. He will cause them to repent. And that's what we see in the New Testament. Luke 15, we read about the shepherd leaving the 99 to go and save the wandering one. And there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. We see the prodigal son just a few verses later, right? He's exiled to this far country. How does he get back to the father? How does he get back to his homeland? He repents. He turns away from his sin. In Luke 19, a notorious sinner, Zacchaeus, tells Jesus that he is repenting of his thieving and extorting by committing to give to the poor and pay back anything that he's stolen. People complain that this guy is turning his life around And do you know how Jesus responds? He says, today salvation has come to this house. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Quoting from Ezekiel 34. Or even as 1 Peter 2.25, our assurance of pardon this morning says, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Brothers and sisters, how does God shepherd you? He leads you to repent. And that is how you and your personal exile from God is undone. That's how God brings you back to himself. He causes his sheep to turn away from their wandering and turn to him. You know, the exile, again, the exile is just the result. The sinning is the root problem. And thus, friend, if you have not turned to Christ, if you have not repented of your sin, do so today as the evidence of God's shepherding, seeking, saving activity in your own heart and life. Turn to Christ today. And so before we conclude, we should note one final application. Uh, Just as God shepherds his people through the man Christ Jesus, 
Well, how does Christ shepherd his people? How does he feed them? As verse 23 states, well, he does it in part through local church pastors. He does it through under shepherds. First Peter 5 states, to the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Part of God's providing for his people is providing for them chiefly and supremely through the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. But one of the ways that God intends to keep his flock is through under shepherds, through local church pastors. And so tonight, Lord willing, I'll have the honor of nominating Mark Butman and Dave DeBon as elders of Trinity Church of Bedford. Uh, that is to be under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a joy and a blessing it is to do so. Uh, Mark and Dave, be encouraged by this passage here in Ezekiel 34. Just as God's love is attentive to the specific needs of each individual sheep, uh, make that your aim as well. Remember that they are God's flock, and you would be a steward and a caretaker. Brothers, just as Christ feeds the sheep his flesh and God's word, so now you take up that mantle and feed Christ's flock. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, marvel at God's great love for you. He's met your greatest need by providing a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. He has sought you out and paid for all your sins. He's brought you back to himself. And now he even gives you faithful under shepherds to point you to Christ and to feed you with his word. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray.